greetings and welcome to episode 30 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about a relatively delicate subject. Our topic today is sex and the law in late imperial China. Um, And we're going to be talking about things pretty bluntly here, okay? We're going to be talking about things like what was the definition of rape, of sodomy, okay, Uh, prostitution, and we're going to get into the legal code that had to identify with, you know, quite a high degree of precision, according to the moral barometer of the day, um, just what these things involved. All right? So I'm warning you now, if you don't want to hear words like penetration come out of the voice of Professor Jacobs, um, then this is probably the episode that you want to avoid. Of course, I guess it's already too late, right? I've already said it. Um, with one disclaimer, if you are one of my students, that obviously doesn't apply to you. This will be on the exam. Apologies. Okay, now, how do we talk about sex and law in late imperial China? During the late imperial era, what we're talking about here is Ming Qing Dynasty, okay, 1500s, 1400s to the 1800s or so, okay? The only type of sexual intercourse that the state recognized as legitimate was that between a husband and a wife, or his concubine, okay? All other sexual relations between men and women were defined as illicit sex. That's the word, illicit sex, What was illicit sex? Well, the courts defined it as, quote, intercourse without morality. What's morality? Morality implies the ritual sanctity of marriage. Okay? The ritual is very important. Boy, aren't you glad you spent all that time in the first five episodes or so talking about the rituals and the Confucians and ritual this, rites that? Uh, It's extremely important. Okay? And to define so many things that occurred in Chinese society. So, In theory, then, sexual activity undertaken by any unmarried man or woman was grounds for prosecution. In reality, however, such cases were only brought to the magistrate's attention when the male stewards of a sexually active female felt that the wrong done unto or by the woman in question had somehow negatively impacted their family's name and resources. I know that's a mouthful, but we're going to break that down and get into more detail about what exactly I mean by that uh, during the course of this episode. The Chinese state saw itself as a champion of the sanctity and perpetuation of the male lineage, all right, the patrimonial line, and they were the the, the protector of the gender hierarchies that placed men in a position of superiority over women. Okay, remember filial piety, Confucianism is very clear on where the women are in this system, and they're quite low. Okay, now let's examine four aspects of the late imperial state's involvement with the regulation of sex. We're going to talk about rape, we're going to talk about sodomy, widowhood, and prostitution. Let us begin with rape. All right, Chinese magistrates were not interested in protecting the individual rights of women or their bodily freedom. Don't read you know, backwards in the time, 20th and 20th, 21st century ideas, okay, which are admirable uh, today. Uh, Back then, they would have been seen as the opposite of admirable um, by the men who were in charge of most of the power and wealth in society, 
Okay, such ideas would have been abhorrent to Chinese magistrates as they would have been to jurists in nearly every other settled and stratified society elsewhere in Eurasia at this time. To them, rape meant the pollution of another man's descent line. It also meant damage to the reputation of the patriarchal clan and the diminishment of a key social and economic asset common to every family. What is that social and economic asset? The chastity of their wives and daughters. Now, there was no single law in the book that was capable of being applied to all cases of rape. Instead, it largely depended upon the degree to which a female victim was believed to have been chased prior to the alleged assault. Okay? A woman who could prove her sexual purity and chastity prior to an assault of rape would warrant a far more severe penalty for her rapist in the event that he was convicted. Conversely, a woman who could not demonstrate these qualities, her sexual purity and chastity prior to the rape, would warrant a significantly reduced penalty for her attacker if he was punished at all. Now the logic was clear. The magnitude of the rapist's crime was imagined to be in accordance with the degree of purity and chastity he had managed to sully, that he had managed to taint. And the value of her purity and chastity was a commodity claimed by the male members of her family, that is, her father, if she's an adolescent, or her husband, if she is an adult. Okay? Rape of a chaste woman usually brought the death penalty, often strangulation or beheading, even if the victim survived the assault. Rape of an unchaste woman who had no chastity to protect usually resulted only in beatings or possibly exile. Okay, remember, we're back in a world in which women are essentially the property of men, and they're treated like property. As a result, Whenever an accusation of rape was brought before a magistrate's court, the burden was on the female victim to prove both her lifelong chastity prior to the assault, as well as her ferocious resistance to the attempted rape. Failure to convince the magistrate of both of these things, her lifelong chastity and ferocious resistance to attempted rape, failure to convince the magistrate of both these things was likely to result in exoneration or a reduced penalty for the rapist. So, how was chastity proven in court? In short, a woman had to show evidence that she had resisted the rape in a continuous and violent fashion. A woman could not claim she had been raped if it was determined that she had given her consent at any point during the assault, even if she retracted it later. So the legal code contained language describing women who had, quote, consented at first but later were coerced and those who had, quote, been initially coerced, but later consented. Both situations negated any accusation of rape. Consent to engage in what the state defined as illicit sex at any point, by any means, disqualified the entire act from being considered as rape. Now, for legal purposes, consent could mean anything from active enjoyment to terrified submission. It's all seen as consent by the men who are in power and policing women's bodies. A woman who gave her consent at any point, no matter the circumstances, was guilty of violating the sexual monopoly over her body that her husband, or future husband if not yet married, was legally allowed to claim. Now the burden of proof was quite high for any woman who hoped to convict their attacker on charges of rape. Qing courts describe it like this, quote, 
Illicit intercourse will be determined to have been consummated only if a weapon was used to threaten the woman or because she was overpowered and tied up, so that even though she wished to struggle free, she was unable to do so. It shall further be required that the woman cried out and cursed, and that she exhibit evidence such as torn clothing and broken skin. Only then shall the offender be sentenced to strangulation. So, in the view of the courts, the object of the assault, i.e. her chastity, represented such a significant element of her identity as a good woman that she was expected to resist unto death when put to the test. Witnesses would need to be produced who could attest to having heard screams and a struggle throughout the assault. Without such witnesses, only severe bodily harm could be expected to convince a magistrate that a woman had truly resisted with all her might. The burden is on her to prove that she had never given her consent throughout the entire act and that she had resisted violently the entire time. So the crime of rape was really seen as a crime against her husband, if we're splitting hairs here, splitting legal hairs. It's really seen as a crime against her husband, or if she's unmarried, a crime against her father. In fact, rape cases only went to court when a male relative submitted a petition on the woman's behalf. Another way of saying this is that accusations of rape were only pursued when a man with vested interests in the social and economic capital that a woman represented to him felt that these assets had been damaged. What would a father or husband hope to achieve by taking such a court to case? Other than punishment for the rapist and some form of exoneration for the family name, most men hoped that they could get some form of official recognition that the rape had not been as damaging to their family interests as once thought. So assuming that the female victim had resisted, and few men would take the trouble to defend a woman who never even pretended to have resisted, i.e. she's lacking any pretensions to chastity. So assuming the female victim had resisted the rape attempt, the courts were expected to determine whether or not rape had been consummated. Consummated, that was the key word. Cheng in Chinese. This was relevant for two reasons. First, if the rape was determined to have been consummated, then the woman's chastity and her husband's claim to her chastity was sullied beyond repair. It was tainted beyond repair. Even if she died during the assault, she was no longer eligible to be recognized posthumously as a chaste martyr, a designation which was so publicly commendable that it might have served as an acceptable substitute for the social and economic capital her family had lost through her death. Similarly, if she survived the assault but did not successfully prevent consummation, no matter how hard she resisted, her husband and the lineage line that he represents would be considered to have been irrevocably polluted, and her standing within her family would decrease enormously, even if she had died. Okay? The only way a woman who failed to prevent consummation during a rape attempt could hope to salvage any of what remained of her chastity was to commit suicide afterward. Okay? If the rape attempt is successful even if you've resisted the entire time to the best of your ability, okay, then you have to commit suicide afterwards or you will not be seen as a respectable member of your family anymore. In other words, no woman could be thought of as respectable if she allowed a man other than her husband 
to consummate sexual intercourse with her, and she did not sacrifice her life either during the rape attempt or after. Now, this is why all husbands and fathers who brought a rape case to court were hoping to procure a certified document from the court that the rapist had, quote, not consummated. Wei Chung. They had not consummated the rape attempt, thus ensuring the preservation of their wives' or daughters' chastity, and by extension, ensuring the preservation of her future standing in both her natal family and her betrothed family, the family she's going to marry into. Okay. The courts, however, don't provide such certification easily. They required you to go through an extensive and precise examination process. No doubt it was a humiliating examination process as well for the woman. What, after all, consummated, uh, constituted consummation? According to legal documents taken from rape cases, consummation specifically referred to, quote, penetration of the female genitalia by the male genitalia. This was the only way for pollution of the male line and female chastity to take place. And if it took place, it was deemed irreversible. Ejaculation was not necessary on the part of the man. And penetration by any other body part or object did not, was not sufficient to fulfill the legal criteria of consummation. And yes, there are examples of such things in the case records. Okay? Don't make me talk about them. In order to make this determination, the court typically brought in a midwife, who would then make a physical examination of the woman's body to determine whether or not consummation had taken place. Now, the stakes were high for all parties concerned, and the opinion of this midwife could affect the fates of many different people for decades to come. All right, that's rape. Let's talk about sodomy. The Chinese state never prohibited or even discussed the phenomenon of homosexual intercourse among women for the specific reason that no penetration by male genitalia and thus no pollution of a male descent line was possible. Okay? At least in their eyes. Remember, because other things can't be a substitute. It has to be <laughs> the real deal. All right? It has to be the man and his body part. Okay? This was not the case for sex, ho uh, homosexual sex among men, however. Okay? So female homosexuality wasn't even something that was discussed or recognized. Because no pollution is possible. Because no penetration is possible by a man. In, in the eyes of the court. But for men, however... What's at stake is not necessarily the chastity of a man, as that concept did not apply to men. Okay? Legislation against sodomy was more concerned with the upending of the gender hierarchy. Okay? It's concerned with the upending of a gender hierarchy, the intense social stigma attached to a man who was believed to have lost his masculinity by having been penetrated by another man, that's the way they referred to these things, and also the larger reputation of the family to which he belonged. How is sodomy referred to in Chinese in the Qing court documents? It's referred to as jijian, literally chicken rape. All right, Chicken rape is the term that would be used to describe male homosexual relations. Okay, Sodomy legislation existed to protect the interest of a patriarchy that had been sullied by the realization that one of its men had been cast in the gendered role of a woman. Women were imagined to be passive vessels, the opposite of men. Okay? Thus, the crime that was being committed in cases of sodomy was that a man had either compelled another man to assume the role of a woman, or that the penetrated man had allowed himself to be degraded to the status of a woman. 
This is evidenced by similar legislation that contained penalties for a cross-dressing man. How is a cross-dressing man described in the Qing uh, uh, court archives? As Bunan, literally not being a man. It was a crime to be born biologically a man and to not act like a man, to not fulfill the socially mandated requirements for what a man masculinity was supposed to look like. Now, prior to the Qing dynasty, there were no specific laws against sodomy. Instead, these sort of cases were prosecuted in accordance with the statute on, quote, pouring foul material into the mouth of another person during a fight. <laughs> That's an interesting one, right? That was the statute, the legal statute that was used for cases of sodomy, pouring foul material into the mouth of another person during a fight. This suggests that it was public humiliation and bodily pollution that were the chief transgressions taking place here. Unlike in cases of heterosexual rape, no social stigma was attached to the male penetrator in homosexual relations. Okay, He was simply assumed to be a sexually insatiable bully, similar to someone who starts a fight, and thus prone to taking advantage of men whenever women could not be found. Okay, Though the penetrating man might be subject to legal punishment, public knowledge of his status as, quote, a penetrator of males would not impede his ability to start a fully respectable traditional family with a future wife later on down the road if he chose to take that path. But for the penetrated man, whose role as the recipient of homosexual activity was made public, it'd be very difficult to assume the male privileges and duties of a traditional head of a household later in life, and his relatives too would suffer by association with his womanly status. A man who's, you know, has consented to be treated like a woman. Therefore, to be capable of being raped was to be regarded as being socially female. And that is the ultimate insult to notions of male masculinity. In fact, there's this uh, really famous novel, so most, I guess, is often described as, yeah, a pornographic novel in many ways, although some people consider it to be, you know, uh, high literature as well to a certain extent. Uh, it's a, a Ming Dynasty novel known as Jinping Mei. One of the characters experiences ultimate karmic retribution through the reversal of his sexual roles. He begins, and you know, I hate talking in this language, but this is the way we need to talk when we're talking about, you know, we want to be precise in using the terms that were used in this day and age. This character begins as an eager penetrator of other men's wives, cuckold, you know, cuckolding them, and he ends the novel as a man who is unwillingly penetrated by another man. He comes full circle. And this is his form of punishment in the end. Okay, he was uh, an over-masculine bully in the beginning, and now he is being treated as socially female. It's about as bad as it can get for a man. Okay, now it shouldn't surprise us to learn that many of the same standards and procedures were adopted for sodomy cases as for heterosexual rape. There was still an intense desire on the part of all parties concerned who had brought this case to court, to determine whether or not cons uh, consummation had taken place. What is consummation in homosexual rape cases? Penetration of the anus. Okay, so in order to determine whether or not consummation had taken place, a court-appointed forensic official was ordered to conduct a bodily examination, and this person is, you know, as we can see, is taking the place of the midwife in the cases of heterosexual rape. Now, it's a, a male forensic official, probably the same guy who goes out and does autopsies on corpses. All right. 
Uh, the standards of prior chastity were also upheld, just like in the case of women. Prior chastity is whether or not the penetrated man had, you know, shamelessly consented to be treated as a woman previously, or if this was his first time. Unlike in cases of heterosexual rape, however, both the male penetrator and penetrated would be punished when all was said and done. The penetrator in severe fashion for being the aggressor, but also the penetrated. In less severe fashion, perhaps a beating, his punishment is having consented to be penetrated. That's the language they would use. Okay? Consented to be treated as a woman with all the implications of public humiliation and loss of face for both him and his immediate and extended family. Now remember, a female rape victim is going to suffer social consequences, but there's no legal punishment for her failure to successfully resist a rape attempt. Uh, a man who is in an analogous position in a homosexual relationship or rape attempt uh, would be punished as well. Okay? Like a female victim, this man would need to show extensive evidence of violent and continuous resistance in order to convince the court that he had not consented to be treated as a woman. Death was likely as a sentence for a male penetrator who had succeeded in consummation, while beatings in exile were likely for those who did not succeed in consummation. By and large, most sodomy legislation was concerned with accusations of rape between two men of vastly different ages. Okay, usually these are the most successful cases that get prosecuted, with the younger man usually being a boy. All right, the Chinese magistrate is always skeptical of grown men claiming rape by other grown men. The apparent belief here was that any adult male would have had the wherewithal to resist a homosexual attacker if he so desired, and that the completion of the act itself must have signified consent at some point. See, in the case of a woman, they would say, oh, no, 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 if a woman resists, uh, you know, as much as she possibly can, uh, you know, if her attacker is a male and he's strong enough, he can still probably overcome her resistance, most likely, if no one else gets involved. But with a man, they would say, no, 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 a man should be able to resist this. Okay, and if he doesn't resist it, then consent has probably occurred at some point. More often than not, the court assumed in such cases that accusations of rape between two grown men were probably false pretexts with which to get one of the men in trouble with the law, probably as a result of some other unrelated grievance. This was especially the case when only one of the men survived the encounter. Accusations that the dead man was actually an aggressive homosexual rapist who was killed in, in self-defense were rarely given credence. Oh, isn't that convenient? You killed another man. The magistrate comes in and says, I got, I got one dead guy and another guy who everyone says, oh yeah, he killed him or he admits to killing him. How are you going to get out of this? Well, you come up, you know, the dead man can't talk. Um, so, oh yeah, he was a homosexual rapist and I had to fight, you know, kill him in self-defense. Magistrate's pretty skeptical of this usually. Okay. Most rape victims who did find successful justice in the courts were described in legal documents as sons or younger brothers of their senior male relatives who pursued cases on their behalf for the same motivations of patriarchal self-interest as they pursued accusations of rape against their wives and daughters. From the magistrate's perspectives, the most believable cases of homosexual rape occurred when the victim was a prepubescent boy who was perhaps 15 to 20 years younger than his attacker. 
This lent substance to the idea that the boy would have been unable physically to resist his adult rapist, sort of like they would believe, you know what, a woman is similar to an adolescent boy, and in the end would probably be unable to fully resist a determined rapist. Okay, rape, sodomy. Let's talk about chaste widows. Chaste widows. And get rid of the violence here for a moment, um, although death is still involved. Now, during the Ming and Qing era, there was only two types of women who had the legal right to refuse to marry. Chaste widows and Taoist or Buddhist clergy. Remember, you can join the monastery and uh, you don't have to marry. Okay? Um, so we know that religious, members of a religious order, women, that was one of your few ways out of marriage and constant childbirth and pregnancy and subordination to a man in a household. Okay? Another way for a woman to obtain the legal right to refuse to, to, to marry is to be a chaste widow. And here, strictly speaking, we're saying that she has the, the legal right to refuse to remarry because a widow obviously has already been married once. No other women had the right to refuse the marriage that the men around her had arranged on her behalf. Okay? So the chaste widow, however, could wield more independence and authority in her day and age than most women could ever hope to aspire. To be a chaste widow, obviously, first your husband has to die. After he dies, it is essential that he left you some amount of financial resources or property. If he died destitute, or just barely at the subsistence level, the vast majority of widows would have no choice but to remarry almost immediately. Heck, they had to pay for their dead husband's coffin, settle any debts he might have had, and feed both themselves and their kids. To do any of these three things, a new widow would have to remarry, in order to tap into the financial resources of her new husband and family. However, if her dead husband had left her some property or savings, she could choose to aspire to chaste widowhood. Okay, the Qing state granted chaste widows the strongest rights to property and inheritance of any women. But these rights came with the catch. These rights depended upon her continued devotion and chastity to her dead husband. Sounds morbid, right? The state still considered her to have a husband. He just happened to be dead. Thus, she was still legally capable of committing adultery against him and his line of descent. So, in order to maintain her enviable status, her enviable legal status as a chaste widow, she would need to forswear, swear off sexual relations with any other man for the rest of her life. A lot's at stake here. Okay, the reason why the state stipulates that every family's inheritance was to be split equally among all sons was an attempt to try to not allow one uh, uh, family to monopolize wealth generation after generation. They wanted to split family inheritance among many sons, okay, so that wealth would diffuse over the generations. This has implications, interesting, unexpected implications. For chaste widows. Okay, here's the implication. Whenever a husband died, there was a good chance that he had any number of surviving brothers who looked at his portion of the inheritance from their parents as something that should belong rightfully to him. My brother died. Therefore, he has inheritance from our parents. Who should get that now that he's dead? Not my newly widowed sister-in-law. Heck no. I should get it. However, so long as that sister-in-law, so long as the widow 
continued to defend her dead husband's sexual monopoly over her body. Figuratively, not literally, that's gross. So long as she continued to defend her dead husband's sexual monopoly over her body, the state considered her a chaste widow and thus legally fit to inherit his money and property and to continue to look after her kids. Technically, they're his kids, not her kids. They're his kids, and she's allowed to look after them on his behalf, so his descent line continues. She's the steward of his descent line. However, two things could endanger her newfound financial independence and social autonomy. Adultery or remarriage, either one of which would be a violation of her dead husband's claim on her. It was therefore a common occurrence in the case records for in-laws to try and pressure a widowed sister-in-law to remarry. Because if she remarries, they gain legal claim to her dead husband's assets, their brother-in-law's assets. Okay? Because when you know, if you remarry, you lose all access to anything that belonged to your fam- for your husband's family. You even lose access to your kids. Usually a woman who remarries has to give up her kids and they go to live with the nearest male relative. Okay? So, If she refused to remarry, however, if she chooses to be a chaste widow and she has the economic independence to allow her to be a chaste widow, they would still try to discredit her by looking for evidence or manufacturing evidence of illicit sex on her behalf with another man who isn't her dead husband. Again, gross. All right, the most common scenario seen in Qing legal documents is as follows. A widow is left with some property. She can't look after this property entirely on her own. It's too much, too much work for one person. So she hires one or more male laborers to look after her fields and her property. Sometimes a sexual relationship might develop with one of these men. If her in-laws learned of it, they could bring a suit against her in court as an adulteress in relation to her dead husband. In order to ensure their success in court, they would usually wait until the illicit sexual relations had commenced, then burst inside, tie her up naked, and take her immediately to the government yamen. Now, once a widow was convicted of having committed adultery against her dead husband, she lost all claim not only to his assets, but also to her own children, who would be placed under the care of a senior male relative among her in-laws. As for the newly branded adulteress, Her in-laws could now sell her off at a bargain bride price to any man willing to marry such an unrespectable woman. A few of the legal cases uncovered also show that some in-laws had little compunction about trying to manufacture accusations of illicit sex against their widowed sister-in-law in a bald attempt to get at her dead husband's assets. In judging whether a sexual encounter had actually taken place, the same standards from rape and sodomy cases would be utilized. In the end, the final analysis, the takeaway point here, is that the Chinese courts would support whichever side of the dispute, either the widow or the in-laws, whichever side of the dispute that had managed to make the most convincing case that they represented the best interest of the dead husband, whose property she was, is, even in death. This was determined through her moral character, which for a widow, your moral character meant the degree to which you remain chaste and devoted to her departed husband, and by extension, chaste and devoted to his lineage as represented by his male children. If she was determined to have failed the moral criteria for wives, for widows, devotion to her husband's lineage, she would be kicked out of the lineage, 
denied access to its financial resources and live to see your kids placed in the custody of a quote-unquote responsible male relative drawn from among her in-laws. However, if she could live up to the moral expectations of a chaste widow, she could enjoy the largest degree of financial and social autonomy afforded to any woman during the late imperial era. You can apply this lesson also to women in the imperial family and the Forbidden City. The most powerful women who end up being able to amass a large amount of power are those women who are you know, married to the emperor or they are the mother of one of his kids. They might be one of the lower ranking consorts and they're the, the mother of the son who eventually becomes the next emperor. And when their husband, the emperor, dies, they become an empress dowager. And an empress dowager isn't going to remarry. She, does, she doesn't have to. She has wealth. She has money. You know, she doesn't have to remarry, obviously. And she can then start to manipulate and speak in the name of the men of the dead emperor and say, I'm, you know, uh, uh, helping them to best represent my dead husband's interests. And on that basis, on that pretext, they amass an enormous amount of power. This is how most women in the imperial court throughout Chinese history have managed to be able to amass their own power. Your husband dies and you outlive him and then you manipulate boy emperors as long as you possibly can. Uh, Empress Dowager Cixi, as we said several times, did that, you know, the longest for 40, 50 years. Okay, finally, last category, prostitution. Prior to the Qing Dynasty, there was no clear stipulation as to whether prostitution, defined broadly, was illegal or not. You're not going to find one single law that says prostitution illegal or illegal. It mattered greatly who was selling sexual services to whom. Officials and other elites could be prosecuted both for selling sexual services or patronizing sexual services. Free commoners could be prosecuted for selling their own bodies, but they were free to patronize the bodies of lower status groups. The only people who were legally permitted to sell sexual access to their bodies were degraded status groups who bore clear social stigmas. These included musicians, actors, and pretty much anyone in the entertainment business. Okay. Most commoners could openly and legally purchase the sexual services of such debased people. Members of the political and social elite could only do so if they later took the effort to purchase the bond price of these people from whoever employed them, and then went to the considerable trouble and legal expense of expunging their degraded status from government records. Not only that, they would then be required to take such newly transformed prostitutes as a concubine. Prostitutes were thus a debased caste, whose bodies were regarded as long since polluted. Conveniently, however, men who patronized these, the, the bodies of this, the, of this debased caste were not seen as being polluted by sexual contact. <laughs> okay. The issue with officials and other elites patronizing these debased castes was not pollution by a lower class. It was rather conduct that was regarded as unseemly for their elevated status, that is, fraternizing with debased peoples. The selling of sexual services by anyone else in society was regarded as illicit sex and punished as a form of adultery, rape, or pimping one's wife. The only other type of sexual intercourse not regarded as illicit was when a member of the landed gentry had sex with a female servant in his household. This was described as favoring her with his attentions. Xing, xing fu de xing. However, even this carried complications. After quote-unquote favoring a female servant with his sexual attentions, Qing law required such men either to raise her to the status of a concubine 
or find her a husband among her own economic class. The ideal is clear. All women should be wives, and all sex should take place within marriage. Okay? Marriage defined broadly as both primary wife and concubines. Anything outside of those boundaries is illicit sex, officially. Prior to the Qing Dynasty, more specifically the reign of the reformist Yongzheng Emperor in the 1920s and 30s, there was nothing illegal about prostitution per se, so long as it was practiced and patronized by the right people. Practiced by the wrong people, usually destitute commoners who were not members of a, of a debased caste, it carried heavy legal consequences. The most common scenarios involved either a destitute family selling the sexual services of a wife or a daughter in an attempt to stave off economic ruin or hunger, or a husband tacitly consenting to an affair between another man and his wife in exchange for goods and services. We talked about this when we talked about polyandry and uh, various forms of prostitution in an earlier episode. The fact that money changed hands was the least objectionable part of the act, unlike today, when the exchange of money is often viewed by courts as the only objectionable part of a prostitution transaction. From the state's perspective, it was the damage done to notions of male and female morality, and thus the viability of the Confucian family unit that was more important. A man who consented in any way, shape, or form to the selling of his wife's sexual services would most likely be forcibly divorced from his wife by the state. If he sold his daughter's sexual services, however, he would likely only be beaten and his daughter would be given back to him since the state did not believe it had the right to break, quote, heaven-made bonds. Talked about that when we discussed imperial law. Now, in the year 1723, the Yongzheng Emperor officially banned prostitution throughout the empire. From then on, it was technically illegal no matter who practiced it. Events on the ground, however, took little notice of this regulation, and prostitution continued the same as before and often by similarly stigmatized and destitute social groups. County magistrates, aware that they did not have the resources to stamp out all prostitution in their jurisdictions, did their best to avoid having to confront the issue in the first place. Few magistrates actively sought out prostitution rings or asked probing questions. Yamen runners were usually bought off or otherwise bribed to keep their silence, and brothels would advertise their business as something else. If a magistrate somehow learned that prostitution was taking place within his district, he was obliged by new imperial decree that had criminalized all forms of prostitution, he was obliged to at least make an appearance of shutting it down. In other words, since he is not allowed to tolerate sex work when he learns of it, he would rather not learn of it at all, since he knows he can't stamp it out entirely. Let me give you the following quote from the late 19th century, which sums up the situation nicely. Okay, this is from the perspective of a Qing magistrate. Successive reigns have found it impossible to stamp out prostitution in spite of the strict laws for that purpose. So it would seem that we can do without such laws. If we look at the facts, has it been possible to eliminate even 1% of prostitution? The only result of prohibition has been to create new opportunities for local thugs and yamen clerks and runners to collect protection money. Moreover, even when we punish prostitutes, with the bamboo and the kong, can we really make them, quote, change their occupations to those proper to commoners? 
On the contrary, they just go on being prostitutes as before. Well, long before Al Capone in 1920s prohibition, Qing magistrates had already learned uh, that prohibition just creates an opportunity for corruption and protection racketeering rings. So when forced to take action, usually as a result of runaway prostitutes who were sold into sexual slavery in other jurisdictions, and then they escape, and the magistrate hears about this. When forced to take action, when he can't turn a blind eye to prostitution, it's looking at him in the face, he would go out and he'd make a show of force. He would shut down token establishments, arrest token ringleaders, and relocate all known prostitutes to the yamen itself. Once there, he was obliged to, you know, quote-unquote, transform these debased women into respectable wives. His method for doing so was to hold a sort of human flesh auction in which the highest bidder could purchase these prostitutes as their new wife at a vastly reduced bride price. Okay? The prostitutes had no veto power whatsoever over whose wife they might become. Now, it sounds cruel on the surface, and it was, but of course this is also similar to pretty much any other woman throughout all Chinese society for all of human history. They have no, they have no say uh, regardless of who their future husband is going to be. The only criteria in this case was that the man outbid all the other men and that he compensate the government yamen for lodging expenses incurred on her behalf. Okay, so these are four major topics that we need to understand uh, with regard to sex and how the law, late imperial Chinese law, treated sex, um, criminalized certain types of sex uh, between men and men, men and women, um, and these things are important to understand because you're not going to have radical reform and change in gender relations until well into the 20th century. Okay, you're not even going to have the first sort of stirrings of new ideas about gender relations and the worth of a woman's body and woman's autonomy independent from men until those ideas really won't even be started to talked about until the late 19-teens, 1920s. They won't be implemented in law and uh, 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 sort of realized in practice on the ground until the communist era in the 1950s. Okay, uh, so when we talk about these sort of things, these are, these are the assumptions, the legal assumptions that govern gender relations throughout most of Chinese history and exerted an influence well into the 20th century, well into the 20th century, and in some places down, right down to the present day. Okay, right down to the present day, especially in the more conservative parts of the Chinese world, um, such as Taiwan. Okay. All right, if you're interested in this topic, as I, as I said before, when we talked about women in poverty, polyandry, and all that stuff, uh, the go-to guy, uh, right, the historical research guru for this is, again, Matthew Summer, historian at Stanford, and his book, Sex, Law, and Society in Late Imperial China. Next time, we are finally made it to the 20th century, the 1911 Revolution. Need I say more? The 1911 Revolution in episode 31 of Beyond Huaxia. Thank you.